This is our second series in the Gospel of Mark, or second sermon in a series we're calling The Way of the Lord. Last week, we looked at the preparing of the way, the figure of John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for Christ. And we looked at all of the ways that we can see preparations happening in our world and in our lives for the way of Christ in our lives. And today, we get the fulfillment of the promise, the arrival of the king. The preparations were made, and now Jesus is going to come on the scene, and he's going to uh, do some things in this passage of Scripture that we will see uh, should inform the way that God prepares us and then allows us to follow Jesus. So starting in verse 9, where we left off last week, it says, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So in that passage of Scripture, we actually see four acts, four different scenes unfold in which is often called the action gospel, the gospel of Mark. He uses not many words to give us a lot of different pictures of what Jesus is doing as he comes onto the scene. We saw him go through an anointing process as he's baptized and the spirit falls upon him as a dove, it says. Then we saw him go through a testing in the wilderness, 40 days, and coming out of the testing, ready to preach the kingdom of God. So we see him in act three, preaching the kingdom of the gospel of God, calling people to repent of their sins and believe in the gospel. And then we see him in act four go through a calling. And in each one of these acts, as they unfold before us, viewing the the movie, as it were, of the gospel of Mark, we find this word immediately. And that is the first uh, example of how many times in this gospel there will be an absolute call to action or an immediate change of scene as Jesus continues to be on the move, showing us the way of the Lord. And this message really will be a title message of our series sermon, The Way of the Lord. He shows us in these four different acts ways that he is going to start as the fulfillment of the preparations of God for the kingdom of God to be ushered in. And at the very end of it, where we just finished reading and where we'll end our time in the Word by the end of this, there was a call to immediately follow him. And we read this, and this is the classic moment where he sees future disciples doing their thing. They're working, they're fishing, mending nets, they're with their father. 
And he says, immediately, follow me. And then they do. So we read this, and there will be a moment in your preparation of God to meet Jesus where he arrives onto the scene, and then you will be met with an invitation, or as some people read this, a command to follow him. And if you're like me, you may wish, as you just imagine yourself in the scene, in a boat, fishing, or on the Sea of Galilee. I'm a beach guy, so I like to vision myself walking where Jesus may have been walking. And do you ever wish that it was that simple in this day, where you could see Jesus face to face, you could have watched him be baptized and heard the voice of heaven come and, and say, well, please, this is my son. And then you could have gotten a personal invitation to follow Jesus. And if you're like me, you may assume of yourself, because we think higher of ourselves than we ought, that you definitely would follow him. Although, as we read this, we'll find that the actual people that follow Christ in a personal way, in a face-to-face invitation, are very few. But the problem is, we don't live in those times. We live in a time where God is calling us through his word, and the preaching of his word, and the beckoning of his spirit, which means to follow Christ, which is where I will leave all of you at the end of this. Are you following Christ? What does that look like? To follow him, it's less step-by-step lock with him, and it's more following in his ways. To you, he says, follow me by making my ways your ways. So we've titled this whole series, The Way of the Lord, so that we understand how he lived. We look at his examples. We look at the way that he lived his life so that instead of following him step by step, we're following in the way that he lived his life. And we could not find a better way to begin that idea of following Christ, following him by making his ways your ways by these four acts that are presented for us in the Gospel of Mark this morning. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these four scenes, four separate scenes, where Jesus sets the stage to be a fulfillment of the promised one. The one that we looked at, there's one coming mightier than me whose sandal I'm not worthy to unstrap, and he will baptize you with the Spirit. Well, he's here now. He's on the scene. And as he comes, he says, this is a moment of history that I'm fulfilling. He comes on the scene and he says, follow me. What does that actually look like? And we start in the place that we began. It says, he came in those days. Jesus came of Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. The call to follow Christ and to think about the ways of the Lord has a surprising beginning. And we have to remember that in most ways that the Lord will call you, he will surprise you. It will very rarely look as simple or as you would expect. And already out the gate, Mark, who does not give many details, which means the details he does give are important, he sets the scene in a surprising coronation of a king. It's worth pointing out as we go through the gospel of the Son of God, the Christ, Jesus Christ, that Christ is not a last name. I hope you've heard that, that he's not Mr. Christ. Jesus the Christ is the Messiah, or the king. And the mission of this gospel is to show us that he establishes the authority of the king, the Messiah, that God promised to the world. And in doing that, like a, a, the proper anointing of a king, Jesus will have an anointing or a coronation ceremony. And it looks different than what a king would ex- expect that ceremony to look like. In fact, we can compare and contrast this anointing with a coronation that will happen very shortly in our world. The king of the the monarchs of the world is about to take his throne. If you're paying attention to the news, 
The Queen of England, the last great monarchy of our world, has just passed on. And now there will be a coronation of a new king. And what will that coronation look like? It will come with fanfare in the center of economy and power. It will come in London at the seat of a throne in a giant palace because that's how they come. Unless you're the king of the kingdom of God. And how does his come? It says it came to pass that Jesus comes from Nazareth, an insignificant city, even in the times of small and insignificant cities. That's why later, as people will hear that the savior of the world, the Messiah, that so many people have put their hopes in has come from Nazareth, they'll say, can anything good come from there? God will surprise us in the way that he honors the birthplace of the king. And then it says that he comes to John, the Baptist. Last week's teaching, the guy wearing camel hair, eating insects in the desert. And that is the man who will anoint him, preaching an unpopular, although well-received, message because God had prepared the hearts of the people to receive a message of repentance from sin. So he comes on the scene from nowhere to a man who is preaching a message that meets us in our pride to humble us in a river that is absolutely non-starting. It's not a river of commerce. This is not the Nile River. This is not a giant place where people would flock to because it's the river where uh, markets can, can form and grow. This is the Jordan River. It's small, it's tiny, and this is the place where Jesus will come to receive the anointing as king of the kingdom of God. And what's the first thing that he does? I am going to be baptized. So we should be asking questions. Bible students, ask questions with me as I read it, as you think about it. Baptism, as we just talked about last week, as we preached in practice at the river three weeks ago, Baptism is a symbol of our vow to God that we must be cleansed from our sin. The baptism of repentance for remission of sins. So the question that the Bible students are asking, why does Jesus get baptized? Jesus, who knew no sin, who has been set apart as the one who will conquer sin and death because he never did deserve to die. Why is he taking part in the baptism? And for that, we just go to his own answer. In Matthew chapter 3, you can turn there, but we'll put it on the screen. Jesus comes from Galilee to John, the Jordan, to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him. I can't baptize you. you I need to be baptized by you. He's already professed that one is coming that will bring a greater baptism. And Jesus answered and said to it, Permit it to be so, for thus is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him to follow in the way of the Lord, to follow Christ without step-by-step step following him is to make his ways your ways. And he did not leave one stone of righteousness unturned. It is righteous for you to make a vow to God that you are publicly declaring the symbol of your vow by going into the water to be cleansed and coming out of the water to be made new. And Jesus says, I have come to identify with every sinner in that process. He validates the symbol of baptism and he activates the substance of forgiveness on the cross. So if Jesus needs to be baptized, so do you. If Jesus is someone who says, I am going to be baptized, although I could probably test out of it, 
because I must fulfill all righteousness. To follow Jesus means you now have a desire to live the righteousness of God, which brings us to the next part of his coronation. Because the righteousness of God is not something that you can actually achieve on your own. It says that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh because what the law could not do in us because of the weakness of our flesh. Which means for you to live in the way of the Lord, for you to follow Christ in a desire that every stone of righteousness would, would be turned over and your whole life would be given. Not just righteous theology unto heaven, not just righteous relationships with the people you like, but a radical pursuit of righteousness for every area of your life to the depth of your heart, you must have the power of God on your side. Righteousness is not possible until you yourself take part in what we will see Jesus himself take part in, which is the next step of the story when it says that immediately coming up from the water, as he goes through the symbol of the vow, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. The heavens part, the spirit descends, and as we already read, the voice of the Father is going to speak his love and his acceptance over the Son. And in this moment, as the heavens break open, they tear, heaven meets earth, we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One of the few times we see them assemble together, and it is at the coronation of the king of the kingdom. And what happens? The spirit falls on Christ like a dove. Jesus Christ, amen, does not lift a finger for ministry. He does not do one thing apart, uh, in, apart from the spirit in walking out his call to live his life, giving a ransom for many to overcome the temptation of the desert, to gather disciples and train them in the way that they should go, to ultimately go into Jerusalem where he would be betrayed, put to death, to rise again. None of it starts. You get very little detail about his life and public ministry until he has received the power of the Spirit, the question of the hour, how do I follow Jesus? You make his ways your ways. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit. So how much more should we not lift a finger in following the desire to live out the good works prepared beforehand, to hear the call of Christ for our own life, is to accept the reality that we can do nothing apart from the power of the Spirit in our lives. And this is a time of great fulfillment. As we looked at last week, one of the descriptions of John the Baptist was camel hair and a belt. Why does, the Mark, why does Mark, the man of few words, give us these details? Because he's trying to help his audience understand that promises are being fulfilled. The promise of the one coming like Elijah. 2 Kings chapter 1. Elijah, the hairy man with a belt. John the Baptist looks just like him. And he's coming to prepare the way, the voice in the wilderness. Now fulfilled in John. And he's doing the same thing. The spirit has fallen. What does that mean? The promise of the Messiah will come with the promise of the spirit. Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, representing the king by which the line of David will be completed in the Messiah. And a branch shall grow out of the roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel 
and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, make his ways your way. What we need as people who desire to follow Christ is a longing and an asking and a faith in the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we say the same thing we said last week. John the Baptist says, I have water. It will be a symbol of baptism. Your life will die. You will live anew, but it's a symbol. Christ comes with the spirit that will baptize you in the power. And I say it again. This is a book that comes alive by the power of the spirit. I have words that are nothing until the power of the spirit make them something for you. You have ears that the power of spirit will open. You have hands and you have feet and we have a building. We have all of these things that will mean nothing until the power of the spirit descends like a dove. And I point you now to another one of those surprising moments of the story where Jesus arrives on the scene and it is not with lightning and earthquake that the spirit falls. Our king is not like the kings of the world. The military might that ushers into a town and you see the tanks rolling into town. You see all the soldiers marching in step to show the power of the king or the president that rules the troops. And what do we have? A dove. A bird that is so gentle and peaceful and calm falls. And so I exhort you again, you can do nothing until the spirit falls. Some of you heard that last week and no doubt went home with childlike faith. Fathers that are evil know how to give the spirit to their children. How much more will God freely give you the spirit if you ask? And some of you asked. And none of you caused a earthquake in Boise. <laughs> none of you caused the sky to tremble. None of you caused the voice of heaven to crack open because the spirit was falling in an undeniable power. The spirit comes in the gentleness of a dove because it sends us to be peace and kindness and joy and love. And the power of the spirit in us is the power to lay down our lives. And as the world is looking for the great and mighty warrior to come in with the parade of military might, we look for the king who identifies the power that he has with a dove. The way of the Lord requires the anointing of the Spirit. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We are still in the anointing act where uh, we will spend most of our time really looking at this first scene that the gospel writer is painting for us. And I cannot move beyond this beautiful blessing that comes from heaven over the king of kings. The father, as the spirit descends, says, this is my son, and underline it, circle it, in whom I am well pleased. And then just take note of the order. The acceptance, the assurance, the beloved relationship between father and son and the well-pleased declaration that the father has in the son does not come at the end of the book. The end of the book, as I've already told you, for our time will end with Easter. We're going to celebrate conquering of death. He overcame the temptation to not pick up the cross and not hang on the cross for the sin of the world. He overcame the temptation to wipe out his enemies who mocked him from the cross. He overcame the temptation to save himself as they asked him to do. He forgave those saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And victory he won for all of us who believe 
And at the end of the story, wouldn't we expect to roll credits with, well done, son? But we actually get it in the beginning of the story. And as you who desire to follow Christ, wrestle with the timeline of the beloved father-to-son nature in your own story with God the Father. Know that the way of the Lord has a foundation of the love of God, not a destination. The acceptance that the Father has for the Son is before Christ calls one disciple. He's not cast out one demon yet. He will. He has not taught thousands of people yet. He will. He has not fed people miraculously with a tiny offering of fish and loaves. Though he will, he has not calmed a storm. He has not walked on water. He has done nothing but establish the obedience of a son to a father. He says, you're my son. And because you're my son, you're loved and I'm proud of you. And fathers, mothers who are evil, you know the proper order of love and acceptance of your children. You loved your children because of God's imprinted love on your heart the moment you held them in your hand and probably before. Mothers love their children when they start just to feel it in the womb. It's like, I love this child. I haven't even met them yet. I was talking to my daughter this week, and by chance, I just, we were just talking about love, and it had nothing to do with this, but it works perfectly because I said to her, do you know why I love you? And she answered profoundly correct. She said, you love me because I'm your daughter. (laughs) And I said, that is absolutely right. And don't ever forget it. Because my love for you will not change with report cards. My love for you will not or should not change with the cleanliness of your room. (laughs) (laughs) Or your ability to wake up and make me coffee and bring it to my bed. Which she does okay right now. My love for her is a father to a child. And God's love for you is from a father to a child. The promise of Romans, we have been adopted no longer in fear. We've been adopted as sons and daughters. You are loved by God. He will call you as you give your life to him through the vow of baptism. He will empower you with the descending Spirit like a dove over you. And his love for you is as rich now as it will be with all of the things that he has prepared for you to walk in. There's not one sermon I've preached that has earned God's love more. There's not one song I've sung or person I've baptized or church growth that I've experienced. Nothing has changed the status that I am loved because I have accepted a position underneath the spirit of God identifying with Christ as a son of the Most High. Some of you just need to hear that as gospel good news this morning. As you're thinking about how we so often get this mixed up. Someday you'll be loved. Someday people will accept you. Your politics get right, when your positions get right, when your bank account gets right, when your diet gets right. Someday someone will accept you. Today is the day that God says, be baptized, be made new be born again, and there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents to experience the Father's love than 99 who need no repentance. And now we have the wilderness, the testing. It says, immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. 
And when he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Scene two, act two. He's now anointed by the power of the Spirit. He's got the proper standing under the love of the Father. Well done, my son. And now it says that he is drove or driven by the Spirit. One of the ways of the Lord to follow him and what we see unfolding before us on how he arrives is when the Spirit anoints you, it is not simply to give you a magical sensation of love and excitement for the kingdom of God. Now, I hope that happens for all of you. The Spirit does not anoint you simply so that you can balance your budget, organize your house, get your lawn nice and green because now you're a, a gardener in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit anoints you so that it can take you to the will of God to places where you never would have gone on your own. The Spirit empowers you to no longer, in the weakness of your flesh, reject the driven way that God pushes you towards things and now compels you to follow him. The very first thing that the Spirit does to move Christ from the baptismal waters is it immediately sends him to the wilderness of testing. And for those of you who have been recently baptized, I will say this as many times as you need to hear it. For those of you who have lived in the blessings of God for however long you have, following Jesus will mean a trying and testing of your faith. Being baptized is not a bulletproof vest for the trials of the world. It is, in fact, the way that you are being commissioned to the trying. Peter says we are tried and we are tested so that the genuineness of our faith may be known. The trials of this world, the testing of your life, the way the Spirit drives you to a wilderness period in your life is so that you would know the power of the Spirit in you. You do not get the Spirit as a thing to have just for fun. You are going to need it. And you're especially going to need it as he takes you to places you never would have gone on your own. Last week we looked at this quote and we'll look at another part of it this week by George MacDonald. He says, when God is about to make preeminent use of a person, he puts them in the fire. You must pass through the wilderness to get to the promised land. And enough people ask me for that particular slide that I realize that it's relatable. That so many of us from time to time feel like we are driven into a wilderness to wait on God, to learn to trust God. And remember the theologian's definition of the wilderness, the place of utter dependence on God, which is the best thing that can ever happen to your life, and it's sometimes the last thing that we want. And in this, this quote, it's worth reminding us of it because he says you must pass through the wilderness to get to the promised land. It's a recollection of the wilderness motif given to us in the Old Testament with the people of Israel. The people of Israel are giving us real-life history and also a picture of preparation and arrival of God's plans because they're set free from slavery in Egypt, which is often equated to the slavery of sin, remission of sin. They're being broken of the bondage of slavery the same way the remission of sin breaks us from the bondage of sin. And then they go through the Red Sea, the baptism of sorts. No longer, you can no longer go back to Egypt. There's a big giant pool of water in between you and your old life. They're into now the wilderness. And in the wilderness, Jesus stays for 40 days as a way to parallel their wandering for 40 years. And what the nation of Israel could not do, 
which was to go through a wilderness period, testing of their faith and the provision and the goodness of God without doubting him and, and eventually losing all trust in him. They died in the wilderness. Jesus brings victory. Jesus now does what we could not do. We are the children of Israel. We are not the Messiah. When we go through wilderness, apart from the power of God and the blessing of Christ going before us as our forerunner, we ourselves wander, lose faith, and lose trust in God until we die. And the good news, the gospel is there is a way of the Lord that Jesus says, follow me in, which brings victory out of the wilderness seasons. So we shouldn't be afraid of the wilderness because we have confidence that the one who we follow has defeated all of the temptation that awaits us. Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness or in our wilderness, but we in all points was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted as we are, but without sin. In the 40 days of wilderness temptation, the Gospel of Luke says that it was continual temptation, that he was in the wilderness continually overcoming the temptations that every single one of us wrestle with now and tomorrow and until we meet him face to face. And now we have a high priest that knows exactly what we're going through. Now we cry out to the Lord in prayer and intercession and a desire for help. And he says, I know how to get you through this. I was there. And that's what it says in the promise. It says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne room of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help him, to find grace to help in a time of need. We now have a way of the Lord that whatever you are going through, whatever testing or temptation you are going through, there is a grace of God that will give you mercy and help in your time of need. For those of you in the wilderness now, you must trust in the victory of Christ as you follow him that there is nothing that Christ has not overcome. And your standing now is more than a conqueror or more than victorious for whatever the wilderness has for you. And I want to encourage you, for those of you who may not identify with a wilderness season right now, to look for it. Because if you're like me, I've read the wilderness passage as a way to, it's almost like Jesus had to have his hands tied behind his back and Satan just got free reign at him. He's going to go to the wilderness and there's wild beasts everywhere and it's like the desert. Wouldn't it be nicer if he was just tempted in the comfort of his own bed? And yet think about the wilderness in a way that might actually be fulfilling part of the plan. This is from the book Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. The concept of the book is we are so busy in our modern time and we've got so much noise and such lack of wilderness that we actually don't have any time where God can strengthen us. And so the entire book is a call to find seasons of your life or moments of your week that would allow the wilderness space for God to speak. And this is what he says. The wilderness isn't the place of weakness. It's a place of strength. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness because it was there and only there that Jesus was at the height of his spiritual powers. It was only after a month and a half of prayer and fasting in the quiet place that he had the capacity to take on the devil himself and walk away unscathed. That's why over and over again you see Jesus come back to the desolate place where we will see unfold us in our, unfolding in our study a call to the wilderness. The Spirit drives Christ to the wilderness. 
And it drives us to the wilderness so that we can actually in our silence and alone time with God be strengthened by his word, hear his voice, understand what it means to trust him utterly dependently. And yet so often the wilderness is the last thing we want. We're afraid of silence. The radio is always on. The phone is always ready. We've got TVs and movies and entertainment so much that we think of the wilderness as a dangerous place. And maybe the way of the Lord is not a season of wilderness, but it is a call to know the God that is greater than your appetite for food, that greater than the temptation for power and provision apart from God, and spend so much intimate time with him that when temptation does come, you're actually ready for whatever the world throws at you. The wilderness as part of the plan. And in the third act, we have Jesus now overcoming temptation. He's coming out of the wilderness. And he goes right into another immediate scene change where he wastes no time in bringing a declaration of the kingdom of God. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. There is a lot just in that verse. If it wasn't the gospel of Mark, we'd go much slower, but he pushes me to be immediate with these sermons. So let's keep going and point out just a couple of things. One, the gospel, good news. We're going to look at that in just a second at how we can understand that more and more as we go through the gospel of Mark. But good news in light of what? Now, when John was put in prison, a surprising twist to the story of the arrival of the king, the one who anoints him, the one who prepares the way, John the Baptist, who is readying all the people, cleansing them symbolically with baptism, passing off his disciples to Jesus. And what is his great reward? Okay, now that John's in prison, we can start preaching the gospel. John the Baptist, used by God in ways that some will never understand. And his ministry ends with prison. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, now I'm going to bring the gospel. In the preparation, the preparation work that God makes to bring the gospel on the scene, the gospel is a light in the darkness. The gospel will meet you in moments that do not make sense. And God will use people who do not see the ultimate reward of their service until they get to the other side, outside of the challenge and the trials of this world. Following Jesus, preparing the way for others to know him, preaching the gospel of Christ, following his footsteps is not a, a message of prosperity and comfort. And Jesus comes and says, my good news is unaffected by the circumstances of the people that I use. The gospel is as real today, right now, good news, that God is taking the, the, the world that we live in back to himself. And it's as good as news no matter what you're going through. I don't know all the circumstances of the sanctuary. I never do. But the message is never wavering. I never preach the gospel and then reel it back because of the tragedy of the headline news. I never go through a week where I'm praying with people and I'm visiting hospital. I'm seeing people in just brokenness. And then I say, well, man, this was such a tough week. I can't preach the gospel now. Because the gospel of the kingdom of God supersedes all of the tragedy of the kingdoms of this world. And it's true of your life. There is nothing about the message of God's love for you, his assurance that you are 
in his kingdom, his promise that he will anoint you with the power to live out the life that he has for you. There is nothing about your life right now that makes that less than good news. And Jesus comes on and it says that he's preaching. Jesus preached the gospel. Preaching is really just an extension of something that already happened. Jesus came to give a public declaration that his life was going to take an identification with sinners in the baptism waters, and baptism is a public declaration, and then preaching is the same thing. Preaching says, this is what God is doing in this world. Preaching the kingdom. The public declaration. You want to follow the way of the Lord? How are you declaring the goodness of God? How are you declaring the goodness of his kingdom? I love what it says in Romans. How shall they call on him who they have not believed? How shall they believe on him who they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? To the Basque people this morning, we say we are sending you a preacher of the kingdom of God. And to every neighborhood and workplace and school and relationship, for those of you who hear this message and think, I want to know how to follow Christ, I say to all of those places, we are sending you someone who will declare the good news of what God is doing in our world today. We are messengers of hope. We are the light of the world. We are those who believe that God is taking the tragedies of this world and not allowing them to affect the good news message that is the end of all things. That Christ will reign supreme and all who believe will be welcomed in and he'll put an end to all of the tragedies of imprisonment and eventual doubt and beheading that we see in John the Baptist. So follow the way. How do you do declare the good works of the kingdom of God. Two things to consider that come from the commentaries. One, John Whitaker, who I've already shared, is someone I encourage you to listen to, the listener's commentary. An amazing way to take whatever we're learning on our week-by-week study and preaching of the gospel and say, how are you learning this to really know the word of God? So John Whitaker, who is one of our brothers in church, has a listener's commentary. Here's how he defines the gospel. The gospel is not a plan of personal salvation. It is the good news that the one true God is taking back the rule of this world through his son, Jesus the King. Does salvation get mixed in with that? Yes. Because Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God, and then he says, repent and believe, which means if you're not in the kingdom, if you've given over your hopes or your desires or your plans for good news in any other way, turn from those ideas and get into the kingdom through repentance and remission of sin. You will be saved with the gospel. The gospel is the power to save. But the gospel message is that God is taking back the throne of this world. That he is using ambassadors to go in and expand the kingdom into every nation, country, city, and state to bring the good news that God is on the move. And it's only a matter of time before he takes all of the things that sin destroyed and turns them around, redeems those of us who believe, and sets us up in the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom of God is the gospel. And the gospel is one of those surprising twists that we get this morning. From one commentator, contrary to the expectations of most people in his day, Jesus did not come to bring a political kingdom. 
Jesus brought a kingdom of love, not subjugation, of grace, not law, of humility, not pride, for all men, not only the Jews, to be received voluntarily by man, not imposed by force. What a beautiful king that we have. What a wonderful commissioning that we get to be a part of, to observe the love and the kindness and the way of our Lord as the mission of our life. And that brings us now to the calling. Because as he's preaching the kingdom of God, publicly and broadly, he goes now specifically to those that he sees he's going to call in as disciples and workers in the field. And I look out and I see a crowd and then I pray by the power of the Spirit that the Lord is calling some of you specifically to hear this message as a calling. And here is the calling. As they walked, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And then we get the example of another instance where he says, Follow me. Jesus calls people to follow him so intimately that he takes whatever they were doing, he takes whatever skills they may have developed, he takes whatever ideas and hopes and dreams that they have, and he pivots them towards the kingdom. What a beautiful picture of actual fishermen for lots of reasons. Our king is not looking for the theologians and those who have graduated from business school and those who have a bank account full of money that he can pivot towards. He uses fishermen, a call to qualify pretty much all of you. Fishermen, if you've ever fished, they deal with uh, going out into a stinky boat with stinky fish and have a stinky kind of opening of the guts to try to sell some fish for money. That's the qualification these guys have. He says, I'll use that because what you were doing with fish, I'll now use for people. And so as we go through all of these, you have to ask yourself, what does this look like in my life as God calls me? What is something that I am doing with my life now that God says that would be perfect for the kingdom? We just got the invitation to think about that with those with special needs. It's like a nurse, a teacher. Is there a way to give that to the kingdom and help in that way? We just got the example of someone standing on stage. It says I was hosting kids. But the kingdom, I'm going to go do it and, 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 and now welcome them back. And God can pivot my entire life if there's a way for me, him to make me something for the kingdom. Teachers, bankers, architects, musicians. He looks at you and says, I'm going to make you something. I'm going to take that thing that you have and I'm going to use it for the kingdom in ways that are so much more powerful and purposeful. And if only we could reach this generation with a message that God will take them and make them something. Because if you want to know the problem that young people feel in our time, it is an absolute depravity of purpose. They know how to make coffee. They know how to go to school. They know how to do the thing they're doing to get money and pay the bills. But they do not know how to turn it into the way that it will be enhanced for God's glory and their joy. They long for it. You long for it. And so I can't help but read all of this through the promise of Ephesians chapter 2. As Paul, speaking of Christ, gives this picture of something that's available to all of us who believe, not of works. The works are part of the plan, but it's a free gift of grace. He says, for we are his workmanship. He's carving at us. He's taking away 
parts of our life that don't belong to this beautiful portrait he's making of us. Then it says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Every single one of you can listen to that and say, God, you're speaking to me. You have good works for me to walk in? What are they? He says, what are you doing now? Let me pivot them towards the kingdom. Let me use your fish, your loaves, your offerings to God and make you something that would expand the kingdom of God. That is actually the purpose that all of us long for. And then we get this example of what the immediate moment is for all of us to consider. It says, and immediately they dropped their nets and followed him. We'd gone a little further. He saw the son of Zebedee, John, and his brother. They were there in their boats mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Mark, a man of few words, which means they all count. Follow me. And they're holding their nets and they drop them. And he goes down a little farther and he says, Father, follow me. And then he says, they were with their father and they left them. Which means the call of God on your life can never be mixed up with this free gift of grace for the acceptance of God and the love that he has for you. Grace is completely free. There's nothing that you can do to earn a born-again experience by the Spirit of God. But the call is very costly. Look, he says, they, they dropped and walked away. The nets for these men were their livelihood. That's how they made their money. That's how they trusted in themselves and provided for their lives. And they let it go. And they said, I follow you immediately. And then he says, he goes down farther, farther and there's, a, there's a, a, a couple brothers with their father. And it says they left the father. The father's household was your life. And immediately they leave. And the gospel good news always comes with gospel reality. Following Christ will cost you something. I know from pastoring and, and, and just ministering to people that some of you have left your nets. Some of you have left the money and the career and you, you left some real potential on the world's economy to follow Christ. Cashing in the promise that he will actually make you something that's so much more valuable. And I know... Week by week, I talk to people. It's like I became a follower of Christ, and that's just not my upbringing, and my parents are confused, and my sister's confused, and my old friends are confused, but it does not matter because I'm following Christ at the cost of my previous relationships. And the promise that Jesus has for these men and the promise that he has for you is that he's going to make your life something so much more than it ever was before. This is the way of the Lord, and this is not something that Jesus was asking them to do that he didn't do himself. It says in Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Perfect relationship, equality with the Father, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He left heaven no reputation. He's the one who speaks the worlds into existence. And he comes hanging out with fishermen, being baptized by John in a nowhere town and a nowhere river and a message of repentance. He leaves it all 
and the promise that we see fulfilled in his life, that he became obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him a name above every name by which every knee will eventually bow. Following in the way of the Lord will cost you your life and it will give you the life more abundant. And so we are going to do one of those symbolic vows with him right now. We do a one-time baptism as a way to say, I have given you my whole life. And then we do a weekly time where we take his body and his blood and we say, I believe that he has made a way for me to stand in the same blessing of the beloved status of a son or daughter. Not because of anything I've done, but because in the same way he identified with me in the water, I identify with him on the cross. His perfect righteousness is exchanged for my sin. And now I get to stand under his righteousness. And that's sometimes in the wilderness and in the tempting, not always something we believe. Sometimes you believe that God looks down on you and he sees nothing but unrighteousness and someone who's far off and someone who's not deserving. And so you hold the bread and the cup in your hand. And you say, it's not because of me. But I believe that I am in Christ and Christ is me and I consume his body and his blood this morning as a declaration, as a preaching to my own soul before I leave to go preach to the streets that the gospel good news is unaffected by this world. I stand forgiven. I stand accepted. I stand as a beloved son or daughter because I follow in the way of the Lord and what he has is now mine.